Welcome to the second Beer City Hopcast. I'm your host, Taylor Darling. Uh, with me today is Scott Van Hull, Quality Assurance Lab Technician at Founders, Brian Bestow, Quality Control Manager of Perrin, Aaron Ross, Professor of Sustainable Brewing at KVCC. Thank you for joining me, guys. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Taylor. Thanks for having us. So uh, today's topic, we're going to be talking about quality control and uh, I guess what that means to each one of you and its impacts on brewing and uh, public perception and all that. And I, I wanted to preface this by saying that I understand that quality control is not exactly the sexiest topic. And No, not at all. <laughs> My nipples are hard. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> but... Uh, Given that this is my, my second podcast, I, I wanted to get this one out of the way because I think that we're here in Beer City, USA, and there's a new brewery opening up you know, every other month, it seems. Yeah. And so I, I think it's very important here um, that breweries are having quality control and that this is being talked about because not every brewery does have this. Uh, so with that, I mean, let's kick it off. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd say a lot, everyone is uh, doing quality control in their own way. I mean, whether you're homebrew or not, you're you're tasting as you go. Uh, that's why we're all kind of making beers because I think we like drinking it a little bit. Um, so, I just want to start with saying quality control can be a lot of different things. It doesn't have to be just pipettes and um, petri dishes and really expensive okay. lab equipment um, that comes with time and money, mostly. <laughs> yeah, uh, but. You know, I, I was just wondering. Uh, so we want this to be geared toward everyone at home, or or other breweries listening, or well, you know, there's no filter for who is going to be listening. I, I think get as technical as you like, and uh, I mean, for the, all the brewers out there, professional who are listening to all the home brewers and all the craft beer enthusiasts, it's this is an insight into what actually is going on behind the scenes, um, and I think it's pertinent to everybody, the, the consumer included. Yeah, I think, like you said, as there's more breweries opening, I think the consumer is getting more and more educated all the time, and that's why breweries are starting to mm-hmm. implement implement more and more quality control. But like Scott said, it's not, you know, simply tasting your beer if you're home brewing, like that's the biggest deal is just taking notes and evaluating your <laughs> beer from batch to batch as, you know, a form of quality control. So Sure, that might be the, the baseline of quality oh, control yeah. is sensory analysis. Yeah. It's the cheapest and most effective. For yeah. Sure. <laughs> you know? They're the tools that are always with you is the way I tell my students. Yeah. I mean, you can't carry a spectrophotometer with you with everywhere or hydrometer. Oh, really? Well, perfect. Let's bring it in here. (laughs) But no, seriously, the the tools that you have on you, your your sense of smell, your uh, visual analysis, your taste, um, all these tools are are at your disposal at all times. And really, you've got to trust them. Now, they're not quantitative, so you can't... It's it's fairly subjective as far as that goes, but uh, trust them. Trust them, and once you hone these tools and calibrate them in a sense through your own education, you know you can really rely on them uh, for a good level of quality control in in many aspects. I, I think you bring up an interesting point because <clears throat> at the end of the day, um, quality control it's it's determining whether something is drinkable or not. But isn't that pretty subjective? Well. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. So, what is what is quality to a brewery? I think um, it it, it kind of changes from brewery to brewery, but for the most part, you're looking for something that um, will bring your customers back time and time again. That is satisfactory to them. Um, I, I'd say most breweries try to set that standard a little bit higher for their own specs, so that um, 
so that their quality is never in question. So you don't have a customer coming back with a complaint, so everyone's happy with all the purchases they have. But um, yeah, I mean, you can put as many as many specs and, and numbers on something as you want, but at the uh, you know at the end of the day, it's got to pass through the taste test and make sure it's exactly what you want it to be, true to brand. Is it good? Is it not good? Right. And then building off of that consistency, you know, so is every batch we have true to brand, you know, so quality yeah. is hand in hand with consistency because if you're not hitting the same thing every time, it really doesn't matter what your quality standard is is if it's not consistent, you know. Uh, Charles Bamforth talks about that in that um, he believes consistency is, uh, it's like the ultimate quality control measure that uh, – um, you may be a brewery that has put out a technically flawed beer, but you have you have a, a base that really enjoys this. It may be technically flawed, but if it's been brewed this way for 50 years, it should be brewed that way for 50 more years. Yeah, I got a question for uh, Scott and Boomer. Uh, so have you guys ever seen, while, while you, whilst you've been at Founders and Perrin, um, beers that have been rejected because they do not taste correct, but their maybe their metrics that define them as a beer are the same. Has that ever occurred where, okay, this it looks like it should be the same, but the taste panel says no. Has it ever happened? Yeah, there, there are those beers that meet the specifications analytically, mm-hmm. and then they fail, you know, uh, they don't, they're not quite there, you yeah. know, when you, when you evaluate them sensory panels. Are, are you saying that's not, that they're not quantifiable? Um, I'm saying that you might hit your ABV and your IBUs, but that's not necessarily an overall aspect of, you know, your ester profile or something a little more in depth that you would have to have a GC like Founders does or something mm-hmm. where you could really dive into it. So that's what goes back to the most effective and cheapest tools, the quality, you know, the, the sensory stuff for quality, because that can catch stuff a lot of the other tests necessarily won't. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even... Um, even to that end, you could pass a GC, you could pass, uh, for people out there listening, the GC is a gas chromatograph that would, uh, essentially it's a really expensive nose that smells, uh, that <laughs> it breaks down, yeah. and you can have a yeah. chemical, uh, uh, you know, concentration of every, every chemical in your beer, essentially. Right. It's like fingerprinting your beer right. uh, on a high, very high level. So we're using it mostly for vicinal diketones, uh, we're to throw some buzzwords at everyone right now. Mm-hmm. Um, VDKs is what they're typically called, and so so that's diastolates, your your butterscotch, your buttery popcorn flavor, and so you, that can pass on our spec level and still have trouble getting through uh, the sensory panel. Maybe it's like a harsh bitterness. Maybe people are getting like a small metallic taste, and so if if something like that's happening, you know, our next step is like, well, how do we create another um, another process to test that outside of the sensory panel? We need to come up with a new SOP. We need to come up with a new method where if something if something does seem off to everyone there, we got to have a second way to test things. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'd say really good quality control is going to have, like, even if it fails one thing, you, you're going to maybe have one or two tests that test for the same thing so you can kind of back each other up. Um, you don't want to put too much weight on one thing. Um, otherwise, you know, you, you could have some things that slip through. So I, I'm the head seller at, at the Mitten Brewing Company, and we're a microbrewery. We don't have access to uh, these hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment that, say, Founders has, uh, and we're unable to test um, certain things like PDK uh, or, you know, uh, put them through machines that actually break it down. Um, so my, my knowledge of this is actually fairly limited. Is, is everything quantifiable? Can you, can you get a metric for every flavor that you're tasting? Um, 
Do you want to help I, me? I, on this I would one? say to a degree, but once they make up a, a totally different matrix that makes up all those flavors together, that's hard to quantify. You know what I mean? He can look for just VDKs, but that doesn't tell you the big picture. You know, Absolutely. so you can have all these chemicals, all these gravities, you know, all the pHs you want, but it's not telling you the whole picture. You need as much information as you can to gather that. Can yeah. so can either of you do you have the equipment to be able to test things like isomyl acetate or acetaldehyde or yeah, um, so, so with, with the spectrophotometer, there's a test for acetaldehyde. Um, the VD, a really good VDK test is just heat it up to like 70 degrees. Get it warm, and you'll actually smell the diacetyl a little bit better. And that's something it's a very a, volatile compound, so it comes out of solution very That's easy. something a homebrewer can do. Oh, yeah, for sure. Put it on a hot plate. Put it on your stove until it heats up to 70 degrees. It's not even that warm. Just body temperature will usually mm-hmm. give you enough to smell it. So, uh, so for any homebrewers out there listening uh, who, who would like to perform a diacetyl test, um, either you want to take the reins on this. First of all, when would you do it, why would you do it, and what are you looking for? And uh, how would you do it? Normally we do VDK test at the end of fermentation, so uh, before we would crash to verify that fermentation is complete, the VDKs have gone down, the diacetyl's not there anymore, the yeast has reabsorbed it and break, broken it down, and uh, that so that way uh, we do VDK test to verify that we're good to crash, essentially. Because once you crash, you're dropping the temperature, the yeast, uh, the yeast less likely gonna, to uptake yeah. the, uh, the yeah. diacetyl. Then, you're, then the VDKs is kind of in there. So yep. so how might a home brewer actually go about that? What's the actual process they do? Sniff test. I mean, as a home brewer, I think sniff test is, is your best opportunity. Do um, you need a centrifuge? No. Not for that, no. no. You, no. Uh, I mean, because that's just going to be uh, inside your beer. You don't need to remove your yeast to, to be able to smell your VDK. Um but, I mean, j- just go to a movie theater, get really acquainted with that buttery popcorn <laughs> smell. I mean, or think um, those uh, butterscotch dum-dums. Oh, Have yeah. you ever had those yeah. candies, like the uh, the suckers? Those are essential. Those are exactly what you're looking for because, I mean, they're using VDK in those candies to get that smell. Yeah, it, it, um, it's interesting you, you bring up butter popcorn because the primary ingredient in movie theater uh, butter is right. diacetyl. Right, exactly. So, yeah, other industries are are seeing this as like as something they would like buy off the shelves and put into their ingredients. So, uh, so it's out there. You can you can kind of like give yourself uh, some sensory training for cheap at home oh, yeah. by doing stuff like that. So, try to keeping things on a budget, I know is always really important in mm-hmm. in any brewery I've ever worked in. <laughs> it's always uh, you know, how how can we uh, do this for as little money as possible and still get the right results. Yeah. And Those going, sensory kits are hard, are expensive too. Oh yeah. But going yeah, back to what the Aaron said, it's it your sensory panel is an instrument. You guys your palate's an instrument, but you can buy like imitation when I started doing sensory panels at my first brewery, we would buy imitation butter, just like that you would mm-hmm. use for baking or imitation banana for isoamylacetate, you know, or green apple for, you know, acetaldehyde. You can buy them for seriously dollars that will last you months and get your brewers or get yourself trained up on the basic you know the five or six ba- basic off layers that you find in beer so i'm just getting the uh all day control going right now i brought a uh, i'll take a bit of control if you don't yeah, mind <laughs> i uh, i brought some cans here that uh that we can all taste cool um i brought a a control uh let's see what's the timestamp on this Today is March 22nd, and this was canned on... 16 years ago. Oh, uh, March 21st. <laughs> this is the oldest all day. This was the first can. No. Um, 321, 19, and 
so yesterday. La- last night at 2100 hours and two minutes. So last night at uh, 9.02. So this is almost as fresh as it can possibly be. Yeah, it's pretty dang fresh, less than a day. So I figured uh, we'll uh, all share a little bit of this, and then uh, now that we have glasses with some sour beer in it, yeah, too, this will be yeah. fun. <laughs> this all day tastes sour. <laughs> How many of that control do you have? Uh, just two cans. Two? So I, I would say yeah, rinse uh, yeah. rinse your glass gonna, with some beer. You want to open Best the way to rinse it? And then, uh, so uh, just for the listeners, I've also brought two cans of... Um, of some all day that we uh, noticed some issues with in our lab, uh, I think last night on third shift that uh, had some high packaged oxygen, which is uh, another another subject we could probably talk about for about an hour if we wanted to, but uh, uh, gives you that cardboard taste. Um, oxygen is a very reactive molecule that degrades hop compounds and some compounds really quickly, so... Um, that's something we can taste next to this control. And then we've also got two cans that were stored warm on a shelf for, this is 8-8. Eight, eight. So what are we looking at? Six, seven months now? Nice. Um, so that's, you know, for all you maybe small breweries out there or anyone else uh, starting to can for the first time what uh, a beer might uh, taste like after just kind of sitting on a maybe a, a garage or a, Gas station shelf, nice and warm for, uh, for a few months. So, so I I know why you have these beers, but um, perhaps the listener doesn't know why do you have beer so so old? Yeah. So uh, one really simple thing is you can always you want to hold on from a little bit of package product from every run you do. Uh, I think this is good advice for just about anyone. In case you have customer complaints, you can go back and take a look at what you have. Um, and especially if it's a new product or a new brand or you're a new brewery, you want to establish a baseline, understand what your beer tastes like every month, every two months, every three months, um, and, and you know, and keep some of the beer around. If you if you say it's got a six month shelf life, uh, you should you know do your best to stand by that and know what it tastes like at six months. Um, so yeah, so six months is the shelf life for all day at Founders Brewing Company. So uh, is there any kind of testing that goes on? Uh, during that extended aging, or is it really just there uh, in the event of uh, a customer uh, yeah. complaint? No, we keep it just for a customer complaint um, or any other um, signs of defects later on. For the most part, though, we don't go back and touch them at all. It's just a just a safety net for us. Um, you know, we keep them, too, if, there's, if we do have something arise uh, or come up with some idea like, oh, let's go... Uh, you know, we're working on like a polyphenol test right now, and like, say we wanted to go back and see what our polyphenols look like, you know, every month for the past six months, and, and you know, see what's happening to our beer throughout there. So it's always, I mean, it's always good to keep some beer on hand, right? Yeah, uh, I, I'm playing devil's advocate here because uh, we at the men actually modeled a lot of our quality control program uh, when we started canning off of uh, founders, and specifically directly from you, the horse's mouth, um, that uh, we're. Aging a lot of beer uh, long term and uh, holding on to it in the event of uh, stealing product that's happening much more rapidly than we would like to see and that kind of thing. Um, so it's interesting opening up a can after six months of, uh, say, our, our flagship IPA yeah. and seeing what that tastes like. Time, time is a constant battle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I would even venture to say that packaging quality control might be one of the most important parts of quality control. The way that I put it to my students is is when you package a beer, that really is, you're like the last line of defense as a packager. You're the one that really defines how that beer is presented aesthetically 
and and um, taste wise to the c- consumer. So you really need to be on your game, and and that that encompasses storing beer in the most extreme conditions because people out there are not as adept and uh, understanding of beer conditions as we are as brewers and even as home brewers you know the level of understanding is keep the beer cold keep it out of the light and make sure it's sealed it can really vastly improve the quality of your product um as a home brewer i was under the misconception that you would want to cellar your beer store it you know in your basement um so at Parent, what we do is we have warm and cold. So mm-hmm. the cold would be the most ideal situation. Yeah. It's been we know it's been cold the whole time. The warm is like in our loft, which is like ninety yeah. degrees. It's <laughs> yeah. like the most you know detrimental conditions for a beer. So that way we can do both. And uh, another thing I like to do is what Scott's doing with these all days right now is uh, use those for sensory panel. Mm-hmm. Get your guys used to you know what is a month a month beer taste like. What is two months you know? And they get really used to that oxida- oxidation flavor and can identify how old a beer is just by tasting it. Hopefully, absolutely. You We've know? done the same thing. We every canning run uh, we take a six six pack. Yeah, our uh, two six packs. One goes in cold storage. Yeah, there's it sits in warm storage, and uh, we actually just recently ran uh, myself and John Vanderplug, who was on our last podcast. Uh, great guy, great guy. Ran a uh, real good guy. A beer <laughs> beer education course for our servers, and one of the things we brought out was uh, a six month old can of Country Strong. Oh yeah, and said here you go. Um, this is a little uh, sadistic on our part, but I want you all to try this and kind of see what this tastes like, um, much to the chagrin of uh, all the servers. So. And I used to work at the Mitten Brewing Company, and I have to say, these guys over there working in the quality department, seriously, you can give them a beer that has sat underneath the, the seat of your car for exactly seven and a half weeks, <laughs> and he'll be able to look at you and tell you what you were wearing that day <laughs> in that car. These guys are unbelievable, seriously. <laughs> I brought some uh, Country Strong into my class this morning, um, legally, uh, and <laughs> it was for a, a lab that we were doing. They were just blown away by the quality of, of the packaged product, and it just goes to show you that, you know, diligence and having that that quality control program really can pump out an awesome product. And Well, this goes back to the fact that we do have all these new and burgeoning uh, breweries here in, in, in Grand Rapids brew scene. And a lot of them are starting to gravitate towards packaging uh, in cans or in bottles because it is uh, because it's sexy and it makes it more accessible to the consumer. Uh, but I feel like a lot of these companies are, are doing that uh, without doing their due, their due diligence in terms of making sure they have a proper QC program in place before they start putting cans in uh, in packaging, or I'm sorry, uh, beer in, in packaging. We've been talking about uh, packaging quality control, but there are a lot of different facets, um, not just sensory control and analytical control and packaging control, um, but ingredient quality control is another really important facet, too, that not, not many people are really understanding, especially from a homebrew level. Maybe if you're just a craft brewer starting off and you're, and you're purchasing uh, whatever malt you have access to, but understanding where your ingredients are coming from and being able to analyze maybe a malt COA, or analyze uh, the integrity of the packaged hops that you have is really important as well because what is beer but raw ingredients? Right. And that also encompasses water, the quality of your water that you're bringing in, and understanding the different smells and the composition of that as well. Water is huge. I think a lot of people just right, look that over, you know. It's 90 to 95% of some beers, you know, and it's, it's crucial, you know. 
it is very crucial. It's, um, it can be daunting to. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Water is intimidating. Yeah. Water, <laughs> yes. Water scares me in general. Water so. chemistry is <laughs> rough, of it. man. Well, yeah. Water chemistry is it, it is daunting in, in um, to to want to to learn that and to want to uh, encompass that into your, uh, your into your quality assurance program. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, how do you how do you go about teaching your students basic water chemistry, or at least try to get them excited about it? <laughs> Good question. Uh, and if you have any thoughts, please let me know. Uh, please email Aaron. Yeah, please email Aaron, and I'm not going to give you my email. dot com. The followers. least sexy of the brewing ingredients. Right? No, it really is. It's difficult. It's difficult to get uh, students excited about it, and you know, there's no easy way to go about it. But I think really. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote Anthony Bourdain here because he's a he's a role model of mine, not just in his his life in general and his career, but he had a great way of putting it with cooking, and I kind of taken that and twisted it for brewing. You know, water is the stock of the soup, and if you think of the same thing, if you want to make a good recipe, maybe a good soup or a good marinade or something like that, you start with the stock, you start with a good base, season it, you need to make sure there's no right balance in there. And, and with the beer, it's the same thing. Understand what you're working with. You're not just going to use some salt water to make, uh, I don't know, some soup. It's going to turn out too salty, I imagine. I don't know. I don't really make too many salt water soups. But, um, <laughs> if I did, I imagine it'd be salty. But yeah, it's difficult to get people excited. Um, and Water Profile has, has such a uh, large impact on, uh, on, your, on your cleaner beers, specifically your lagers, which is why I think people... Uh, People always talk about you know the Burton upon Trent water profile, and a lot of these European water profiles uh, they have different salt combinations um, or lack thereof, and uh, and they it makes different beer. And I don't think people realize that you could take uh, water with one profile and water with another profile and brew the same beer with it and have them taste completely different. Yeah, different mm-hmm. mouthfeel, different. Um, Accentuations uh, in, in in terms of uh, like hops or malt. Yeah. yeah, and every small brewer or home brewer can call their city and get a water profile, just like their basic what they're getting. You know, so that that gives you a base ground to start with, and then, uh, like Aaron said, you can build it up from there. Or you know, uh, home brewers, you can always use like distilled or spring water and start from nothing and build. You know, use brew salts and yeast nutrient to build it back up, and then your yeast is good to go too. So mm-hmm. I understand Perrin uh, does a lot with their water. Yeah, so we have a three-step system. So we'll carbon filter it, which gets rid of all the chlorine and stuff like that. Then we have a water softener, uh, removes all the calcium and magnesium, replaces it with sodium, and that kind of preps it for the RO filter, reverse mm-hmm. osmosis, and that strips it down to pure H2O. And the cool thing about that is we're it, it's really versatile. It allows us to be really true to style, like you're talking about these different regions that have these different beer styles. Uh, if we want to make a really soft water profile for a Pilsner, that's there. If we want to make a really hard water profile for an IPA or whatever, we can throw a bunch of gypsum in there and we got that, you know. So it allows us to be really versatile and really consistent with how we're doing our water. So uh, at first I wasn't a huge fan of it. I didn't see why it was necessary, but now I love it. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you guys, do you guys build your water profile on a beer-to-beer basis? Yep. Yep, so everything gets its own uh, profile of different salts, and then we have to add yeast nutrient, like I just said, because uh, there's a lot of stuff like zinc that the that the yeast needs in order to do its thing. So we throw uh, a lot of brew salts and a lot of yeast nutrients. So it is a lot more expensive, but we feel like it's worth it, and then for uh, quality and consistency's sake. 
how accessible is that kind of stuff for the home brewer? I mean, can does you, the home brewer have access to that kind of equipment? You can go buy five gallon jug or you know five one gallon jugs of distilled water. Bam, you're starting from nothing. You're good to go. I, you I, know? I, I did that. Once. I used to do that all the time. <laughs> Start with spring water or something. Uh-huh. Spring water has a little bit of something in it, so that way you're not starting from nothing. You can save a little bit of money on brew salts, but salts aren't yeah. expensive. Or, you know, uh, it's worth it. Uh, I lived in Kalamazoo for the past uh, two three years, and I, I worked in um, the Bell's homebrew shop there, and. So they, you could get the the city water report there. Oh yeah, and nice. So it was really, really hard water in Kalamazoo, <laughs> yeah. which is good for some things. But in my opinion, it, you know, from a home brewing kind of easy standpoint, is you know measuring out salts can be really intimidating. Is like because of this hard water, you go buy two gallons of distilled water, mix that with water coming out Cut of your tank. All of a sudden, yeah. you've just got mild water. You know, it's mm-hmm. not perfect, but at least. I'd say if you're a home brewer putting any thought into your water profile like that, you're, killing it. you're yeah. miles ahead of, of, of others. Absolutely. Stuff. Yeah, as a home brewer, I, I, I was a mash efficiency junkie, and that's what we really gravitated towards. But Is that the, what those marks are? But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, um, the biology and the chemistry of beer uh, was lost to me. And so, even though I'd gravitated really, really hard towards this one aspect of brewing, uh, because the rest of it hadn't fall, fallen into place, uh, the beer itself, I remember the first year of me homebrewing was just garbage. <laughs> I think that's how it is with all of us. Yeah, so pretty much. You know, that's how you learn, man. I mean, sure. from a certain standpoint, I'm still making garbage beer, but that's my own standpoint, you know, biggest critic. Right. Yeah, absolutely. What's... Uh, so right, well, I, I'll talk. We're I, I, you guys can't see. Well, actually, there is a video, but uh, right now we're all drinking the um, the high oxygen content all day. I'm wondering if anyone else is picking up a little cardboard. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually pretty surprised. Paper. It was a store colder warm. Uh, well, I mean, it was like less than 12 hours old anyway. So, but it would have been. No, I'm talking about the. Uh, this is the old one, right? No, you're drinking just uh, less than a day old, but high oxygen content when packaged. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, less than a day old. You know. I can't imagine that the oxygen would have time to mm. to do anything. You could tell the hops are dulled. I don't think there there is definitely that wet cardboard like newspaper type of character, but you can tell the hops aren't as vibrant and as bright as they were in that control. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I I pick up more personally. Yeah. Uh, something I'd really like to touch on actually that you just mentioned is oxygen content needs to be tested within the first two to three hours of yep. packaging in a can, otherwise it's going to go down. So yep, it, it, and being an accurate, so going down means it's actually reacting with the beer. So you're going to see oxygen imperfections two or three hours after exposure. So yeah, twelve hours at this point, yeah, you should definitely be able to pick up some. Yeah, there's, you know, as as Boomer said, uh, there's some degradation of of hop terpenes, and uh, I get a little little cardboard, but for the most part, it's. I would not be upset if I got this off the shelf. And, uh, well, that's good to hear. Because yeah, no, <laughs> I want to reiterate, you would not find this on the shelf. The only reason we have this in the studio today is because... It might be on the shelf. Because, <laughs> no, absolutely not. Can I, can I ask what, what, what kind of PPB you're looking at? Uh, this would have been over 300 uh, TPO. Oh, TPO, okay. Oh, that's yeah. uh, total package oxygen for those who yes. uh, aren't aware. Gotcha. So, that's, that'd be about... Uh, over over three times our spec limit. Sure. So we've uh, we've done some runs with Country Strong, and for the most part, we stay under 100 ppb. We're sitting now around 30, 40, 50 ppb, uh, which is plenty acceptable. And uh, 
But the uh, the runs where we've had where it's been less than acceptable, and we're talking over 200, uh, it's been fine the day after, but you start noticing it towards the end of the week where all of a sudden um, it it's yeah. that oxygen has, has done a number. It gets exponentially worse over time. Almost. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, you know. Yeah, and uh, and conversely, or uh, yeah, uh, on the on the on the other side of the coin, uh, you have beer which has amazing PPB. For instance, we just got done packaging our peanuts and cracker jack, and we had cans coming in at seven, eight, nine PPB, and wow. uh, I can only imagine that those cans after two months stored warm would probably taste relatively similar to where they were at before. Is this DO or TPO we're talking? TPO. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah. Seven TPU? Seven. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. I, I, now listen, I now I don't know. It's the uh this is the only beer we have that comes with comes out with numbers like that. So I'm not really sure what the correlation is. How are you guys measuring? We have we have an Anton Parr oh, nice. C Box QC. C Box, cool. Um so yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. Yeah, we Because those those we don't ever get those numbers. You know, at founders they're lucky enough to have what a Crohn's canner? Uh Hawk. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, we've got a Hawk uh, 6100 and the 3110 as a backup. Okay. So the, the 6100, have you seen one? Is the fully automatic. You That's pr- where you pr- oh, yeah. I was talking about your can line, though. You, oh, pro- our, you oh, probably get super line. low oxygen on that. We're yeah. not, apparent. we don't yeah. have an awesome can line no. like that. Do you, so guys, we, you guys have a rotary filler? Or is it just uh, a, nope, it's in yeah. line right now, so we run two side by side, but we worry a lot more about headspace areas. You guys have a ma- right. micro, so, uh, micro canner? Uh, yeah, so it's a cast five-head filler, and we run two of them side-by-side okay, right yeah, now. We, We're getting a rotary this year. Yeah, hopefully. we have the, oh, was nice. it the 1000 series or whatever? Yeah. Yep. Yep, so um, we have the six-head filler, and we got amazing uh, TPO on the last run at the cost of, I think it was 15% product loss. So wow. there's the trade-off there. Yeah. Is, uh, That's not so bad, no? Well, 15%. <laughs> that sounds good. I'll take 15% of every beer you drink. How's that sound? <laughs> You're a madman. <laughs> well, in, I mean, in terms of gallons, that's, you know. What, it's many eight, gallons. 80 gallons, yeah. 90 gallons for a 20-barrel batch. Mm-hmm. So, Scott, you said you had the 6100 canning line? Uh, uh, I'm talking TPO about. TPO measurement. Yeah, so there's oh, a. Awesome. Anton Parr is a great company that makes a lot of great uh, instruments for checking CO2, ABV, and, and DO, but there's another company called Hock, H-A-C-H. Um, we trust them a little bit more for their uh, for their DO sensor. Apparently, proprietarily, it's it's a little bit better than what Anton Parr has uh, from what some of the techs have talked to me about. Um, and this machine... It's the Gehaltometer, correct? Uh, no, not the Gehaltometer. <laughs> Oh, well. This is just for package cans. Yeah, you basically it's automated, like you said, right? So totally you basically automated. just press go. The shield yeah. comes down, pierces the can. Yeah, you I press the play oxygen. button. It comes down, does everything, <laughs> wow. and then leaves the can when it's done. It gives me dissolved oxygen and li- the liquid, and then calculates the Whoa. total packaged oxygen with this as well. Nice. And, and a then, cup of coffee too. Huh? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, those things are sweet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're fortunate enough to have that. Um, and so we don't. So you, you know, you don't need to shake it because if you're doing, you know, your yeah, your yeah, C box, you're you're, you're back calculating all of your pe- total package oxygen based on your headspace, and you need an equal. Uh, you, you need that oxygen completely uh, in solution, so you can kind of get an equal measurement without this um, this machine that can also measure the headspace oxygen. So um, saves us a little bit of time. Do you have to do any shaking? 
Only if that machine's broken, hmm. which, you know, happens occasionally. Does it provide a little bit of back pressure and keep... It's got a sonication table built on oh, it. Oh, okay. Wow. So, so it just... <laughs> nice. Jealous. Scott, so what do you do? <laughs> I guess I'm wondering. I, I, I press one button. Yeah. <laughs> He's a glorified uh, note taker. Right. Exactly. Perfect. No, you do great work. We're, we're very appreciative. Hey, uh, so <clears throat> real talk here. I notice a lot of empty glasses. Can we... Yeah. Remedy that. Do you guys, okay, so here's here should be the uh, past the shelf life, um, sitting on a sitting in a gas station shelf, just going real bad. I said I wanted beer, but I, I was more talking about good beer. <laughs> We're trying to gas station. Are we, are we here to help people or just drink? <laughs> We're drinking I'm, because we care about you, <laughs> listeners. I'm I'm here just to drink. So. Right. Okay. <laughs> You've oh, got yeah, a producer. There can, it is. There's a <laughs> yeah. This tastes better like to do on a Friday night. I just about filled that up. Sorry, Taylor. <laughs> it smells like warm honey and hops left out in the sun. Oh yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yep. Get that trans tube moving and all. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's old. Oh. <coughs> wow. So, yeah. So, that's hopefully... Hey, Malty. Is, is, is there a little part of you that kind of likes old steel beer? No. There's yeah, a, I killed that part of me long ago. <laughs> there's a little part of me that... You've been drinking too many like aged old it's ales the, that are barley wines. Yeah, it's, I, it's the maybe not in hoppy beers. Though. Yeah, that's true. That, that's I don't enjoy as much. This is awful. It's uh, <laughs> okay. I got I got an interesting story. So uh, back when I used to work at um, Bell's General Store, shout out Bell's General Store, um, <laughs> at their can store. It's um, not a plug, I swear. So people <laughs> shameless plug, right? Uh, they uh, <laughs> well, so hop, Hopsland comes out every year, and people are in love with it, obviously. And it's a fantastic beer when it's fresh. And we had people come in every year with with you know, year old cans of Hopslam. And ask us why it doesn't taste like this year's Hop Slam, and it's because the cans are a year old, and you're drinking them right next to a fresh one. It's gonna taste. Oh, they're doing a side by side. Yeah, they're doing side oh, by wow. side. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So they're like, huh? You know, this year's tastes different than last yeah, year's. Yeah. It's like it's gonna. I'm actually glad yeah. you brought this up because at uh, I want to say it was the CBC, uh, there was a seminar about field quality control, yeah. and it was led up by. Uh, one of the guys from Bells, I, I don't remember his name, but he talked. But the whole point of field, field QC is educating uh, the retailer and, and uh, by extension, educating the customer. That's huge. I mean, mm-hmm. if your customer isn't educated, they're going to bring in old Hop Slam from a year ago and ask, "Why does this not taste the same?" I got that box over there too. Yeah, it's it's not that. it's not Coca Cola. Like, you can't I like that. Sit, I get you can't to be the sit on yeah, it for, I was say, you're, you're forever and expect it to taste exactly the same. Yeah, or even remember what it tasted like a year ago. Even sure. if you don't have one, it's like some of the best tasters I know don't remember exactly what something tasted like a year ago. That's I got some sours. I got no. What do you guys feel like? I was just yeah, I just do, you have anything, do you have anything in mind that? I wanted to try that sour that uh, that little bottle. It's like a five-year-old sour. Oh, the one of the, yeah, Ooh. I have no idea if it's going to be good. I'm, I'm warning you guys, it might not. You know, it's very old. I want to see how it holds up, though. Well, like I said, I got, I got a hard on for stale beers. So. <laughs> yeah, apparently to. you're gonna write us right word. I should have sat on the other side, away from you. <laughs> Go for it, man. Still had some. Yeah, Scott, did you bring <clears throat> KBS? Yeah, I brought a vertical of 16, 17, 18, 19. 
So I, 19 was just released about a week ago. Go, I, go get it, everybody. I, I, Another I, shameless, shameless plug. plug. <laughs> I found it. <laughs> located on Grand Eleven. Um, I spoke with Jason Haystack, the barrel master at Founders, and what he told me is is he said um, he said don't age KBS. Uh, he goes, I already aged it for you. Right. Why would right. you? Why would yeah. you? Why would you take the next step and age it further? You're just degrading the product yeah. at that point. I'm not a fan of cellaring in general. I like to drink beer, you know. Or you know, I might keep it around for a few months, but there's very, very few beers I keep for a long period of time. Has anyone ever aged a beer and been like, "Glad I did this"? Yeah. Eventually, it's going to reach its peak, and it's just yeah. going to start getting worse. So you know, that's a that's a dangerous game you're playing, where you know eventually it's going to hit its optimal time and then it's just going to degrade from there and then it's going to be no good by the time you drink it in three years what do you as, think yeah. as we're drinking one of my five-year-old <laughs> sours <laughs> what do you think? this is yeah. research, research. <laughs> yeah right no I'm, I'm interested it does smell really good though why do yeah. people age beer I, I, well, there are some beers that are better aged you know there are but there's only certain styles i feel like hold up to that age you know yeah i, th- I do it i think just out of nostalgia and curiosity yeah uh you know i know kbs coming out fresh we've aged for you we're releasing it now because we think it's good now we think you should drink it now if we thought you should drink it a year from now we'd release it a year from now uh you know that's so that's i see that side of it but on the other hand you know enjoy the beer how you want to enjoy it if you want to age it i think it's just a fun thing to do it's it's uh you know, nostalgic and, and just a fun experiment more on, like, the QC side of it. I see it as, uh, you know, kind of something that's, you know, part of what I'm interested in is, uh, you know, what does this beer taste like in four years? And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm sure Perrin has their own thing. Yeah, it, we, they, You guys age a lot of beer. Yeah, we keep in mind that, you know, there is a range with those barrel-aged beers that it's going to be good. So, and we keep in mind that the consumer's probably going to age it, most likely. So, what we do is try to release it towards the beginning of that range, keeping in mind that they're going to keep it around for a while. So, hopefully, by the time they open it, it's still within our acceptable, or where we would like them to drink it, you know, so. Mm-hmm. This is five years old? Yeah. And I've seen your I've seen your uh, stash of aged beers, Scott. And I have to say, it's you got an impressive stash. It's, it's more of an addiction, yeah. and actually, that's why we brought you here. Oh, this is when it's going to happen. Yeah, do you think it has anything to do with the wine industry? You know, um, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Please talk on that. No, no. Yeah, I, I think there there is some crossover there, and but there are those higher ABVs barrel aged beers that do hold up to time. But you know, it's not good for your you know IPA or whatever you know your run of the mill beer it's it's only for certain beers i feel like i i think that there's also a certain level of intimacy that the brewer has with putting beer into a barrel and this is something i talk about in one of my classes is we've been doing this for upwards of several thousands years humans putting beer into a barrel and i think it's just kind of one of those tradition it's hard to break away from it's almost ingrained in our dna i should put this into a barrel and i should sit on it and wait for it because i might need these nutrients at some time <laughs> i don't know it's, it's difficult to say yeah, it's an evolutionary thing it right? is yeah. yeah you never know when the next crop Ethanol is gonna fuel. fail and all you yeah, have is yeah. this barrel of beer yeah i've got a saying in one of my classes that it's, it's called ethanol fueled evolution <laughs> nice 
<laughs> no, I mean that's very true though. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're, you're Don't not, get me started. You're not. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's right. When's the next history episode? Oh my God. <laughs> that's, that's a good next week at nine p.m. <laughs> <laughs> the history um, beer. Last week we talked to, or in the last week, last month, uh, uh, the guests I had in here talked about mixed culture beer and funky beer. Um, I think that's another category of beer that ages really well. Uh, beer that has live microbes in it, especially Brettanomyces um, lactobacillus pediococcus. These these microbes that continue to work on the beer and work on it slowly. Um, this is a testament to that. This is a Rosalier, correct? Yep. This and is actually sterile filtered, so different world. Really? We stabilize mm. it. Yeah, yeah. So oh. we remove all those microbes. But we do a lot of uh, bottle conditioning and stuff like that as well. Um, I think the low pH on this also helps pr- preserve oh, yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. High high total acidity, low pH definitely yeah. it helped it stand up. But Take the paint off a car. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very sour. Yeah. But, yeah, a lot of breweries nowadays are, are doing sour beer. They're doing funky beer. And yep. um, I, I think that helps. Uh, what am I trying to say here? I think those are some of the best beers of sour. Sure, you know, especially it, it helps if in the way of like yeah. per, you know pre- preservation and and this whole cult of aging beers that you can do yep. that with these sour beers and you're going to be a okay. Yeah, most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> unless, they, unless they turn to vinegar. <laughs> yeah. Let let the stuff settle and then pour it out. Yeah, <laughs> give it a while. Or you could jumpstart your digestive tract and just kind of <laughs> get those probiotics. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's good for you. Yeah, that's hilarious. Um. So, YSQC, I think, seems to be this really daunting thing for these smaller breweries. It shouldn't be, I don't think. Uh, the way I break down all, you know, my QC system is there's the micro stuff, which takes a little bit of effort and a little bit of equipment. The analytical stuff, you know, obviously Founders is on the high end of that spectrum. They got all these cool pieces of equipment, but just measuring your gravity with a hydrometer or having a simple pH meter, just measuring your temperature. Those are all analytical stuff. And then the final one's the sensory stuff, which we've already been talking about. So if you hit those three areas as much as you can and build up from there and constantly be building, then there's not much more you can ask for. Yeah. A lot of the kind of quality mantra that I've been, that, you know, I've learned over the past couple of years is that you, I can't, as a, as a laboratory technician, put quality into a beer. I can tell you if quality is there or not. Um, and so quality is not coming from the lab. It's coming from everyone else in the brewery. Yep. So it's, it's it's our job to tell you yes or no. It's not our job t- to make the beer good. What's important is that everyone in that building is is set on making the best beer that they can. Um, that's, you know, that's kind of the, that's the gist of it is, is you want, you know, the quality lab to be your friend, but it comes down to, you know, just doing everything right every single day and, you know, putting your best foot forward i love that philosophy of the the dudes on the floor are responsible for quality yeah. control the lab is responsible mm-hmm. for quality assurance so you Just, guys aren't yeah. cracking the whip you're the gatekeeper yeah you guys are kind of like the Lindbergh yeah. if it was office right. space <laughs> yeah you're gonna have to go ahead and that yes that's probably on how set. they yeah that's probably how they feel about us but. yeah well we, we actually are just in the middle of changing our um our department t- name from quality control to quality assurance yep and, awesome uh Mostly because quality control is it, it typically done by like approving product to ship or not, or like this is good or this is not. Quality assurance being you're assuring every step of the process throughout throughout the thing. So you so I'm assuring uh, that kind of everyone's 
um, duties are getting getting done correctly and helping them out instead of just saying this is good or this is bad. So I want to help everyone else out mm-hmm. in the brew house, in the cellar, in the packaging team to help them troubleshoot, figure out what problems, figure out if if uh, you know what they're doing is accomplishing what we want to get done. Yeah, the quality control team or the lab team should be very involved with every department. That's what I love about my job is I get to talk to my head brewer and my you know uh, my head package guy, and we're constantly talking, troubleshooting problems. It's you know that's why I still like being in the lab is because I get to do all this you know I get to be on the brew house some of the time and do what I you know love to do and get involved with all the areas. So yeah, so you, you do have you you get to be hands on with everything. Oh yeah, like uh, when it comes down to making brew house decisions, you know it's usually our product manager john our head brewer myself and a couple other guys and we decide as a team what we're going to do but you know like i said that's why i love working in the lab is because i get to go all over and and work with all these great guys and help figure out these problems and Mm -hmm. improve our beer so yeah the detective of the brew house (laughs) really no you you you've you've tried to find a problem and then you try to figure out where it came from so the real quality control is making sure that the people actually brewing the beer know what they're doing it's the guy on the brew house measuring gravities and ph's it's the dude in the cellar is about to transfer that's doing a go no go just to ensure that everything happened properly you know it it happens at every step so i feel like a lot of brewers are on different levels in terms of their knowledge of the sciences of brewing it is it is it a requirement to to know why these things are happening in terms of you know chemical reactions or is it enough to just Teach someone, hey, you need to take this measurement, um, you need to record this. Um. I think it's better for them to have a better understanding of why they're doing it, and then when a problem does occur, they can troubleshoot it a little bit better, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I think it's important to an extent, but we're all learning. You know, education should be our number one goal as brewers is constantly learning more. So, I mean, that's what I always strive for. I'm sure you guys do too, you know. There's always something more to learn. So uh, just empower yourself and keep learning, keep mm-hmm. reading, keep going to talks. You know, it's, that's what it's about. Yeah. Man. Con- consciousness is the first step of quality control. Understanding that your product is flawed in some way. Oh, yeah. Now, how do I figure out how to solve these problems? Yeah. And whatever your budget is, that's where you can start. It's really a good place. I mean, it's, if you have a high budget, start there. But it doesn't necessarily need to be high. You can start very low. You can start just by honing your own tools that you carry on yourself. And if you don't know why something's happening, you can find out. There's somebody out there, there's, you know, there's somebody out there with more knowledge that can pass that on to you. You just got to seek it out. You know, I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of great guys that have taught me so much. And, you know, there's always somebody out there that can teach you what you don't know. So you just got to ask questions. And I just want to say this too. We're we're here in Beer City, USA, and we are, we are unlike any other place in the, in the world. Uh, We are a brotherhood. And we look out for each other. I've got my tattoo. <laughs> I've got my tattoo, he says. Uh, Do you? We, uh, <laughs> but we look out for each other. And we run out of grain, or we run out of hops, or we, at, we, we have a technical question, or we're troubleshooting, or anything. We are always all here for each other. That's what's cool about this industry, you yeah. know? Like, Absolutely. I don't think there's a lot of other industries like, hey, I ran out of this, uh, this equipment, or this, you know, I need this piece, or this, you know, bag of malt. Mm-hmm. You can run down the street, go grab it, and pay them back later, you know? Or, that's not common, I don't think. Or, hey, I didn't bring beer to the podcast, and here comes Boomer <laughs> walking through the doors, the sun is shining, behind 
behind him a silhouette of him in a box of beer shining upon me. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's beautiful. <laughs> I know, uh, obviously, from firsthand experience that we at the Mitten go to you at Perrin when we have questions. We go to you at Founders when we yeah. have questions, and we banished you. So yeah, and it's it's good to be. You're dead to them. <laughs> <laughs> dead to myself in some manner. Oh, it is getting dark now. <laughs> Sunshine is Friday, people. Cool, 40 degrees. <laughs> oh, jeez. All right. Um, but yeah, that com- camaraderie is awesome. You know, I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and hopefully the industry never loses that. You know, you know, even the biggest brewery in the state. You know, founders totally willing to help. You know, pass along information. We were just at an NBA meeting yesterday, and Alec is. You know asking all these questions, you know, and engaging with all these guys and teaching the next generation of brewers, which I think is awesome. How was that, by the way? It was, it was, you know, at, at first I was just like, oh, they're talking about hoses and kegs. Like, it might be all right. <laughs> awesome. Like, they could that's talk great. about hoses, for, for, ho, brewery hoses for like three hours, and I was just like, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> that's good to hear. <laughs> you know, from what I've heard, not every brewing community is like that. Um, yeah, I'm I've, sure. I've heard even yeah. on the east side of the state, uh, there's a little more hostility. It's it's more cutthroat. Every man for himself, every brewery for himself kind of thing. Uh, why do you think, you know, to each one of you, why do you think we have that here um, unlike other places? Well, I think the industry's changing. So, you know, when I started brewing, there was, you know, every brewery was having 200% growth. And it is getting a little more cutthroat now. So maybe, you know, that's why I'm saying I hope we don't lose that and that doesn't change because it is getting more and more competitive now. You know, uh, there's not the, you know, growth we were all having, you know, five or ten years ago. So I think it's starting to stabilize a little bit, which overall will be a good thing. But, yeah, I, you know, I think uh, Grand Rapids Brewers stick together for some reason. Have we plateaued? Are we are we are we heading that direction? Have we hit the glass ceiling? I don't know. I'm not a salesman. Ooh, that's a whole other discussion. Neither yeah. No saturation. <laughs> uh, but I think the reason that we've stuck. I'm, I'm so, just here to drink beer. <laughs> the reason that we've stuck so Speaking close of. together. Um, I think has to do with is brewing is kind of a network economy. We got if, no rules. If one person um, fails, then it, it influences yeah. the rest of the breweries. But if everybody succeeds, then that certainly is its a boosting economy. It helps everybody else. If the brewery down the street closes, sure, you're getting more sales, but it's, the, it's that, that network economy mindset of it is, is really part of the reason why this um, brotherhood still exists. And because Scott brings us four years worth of KBS. Yeah, I was going to say, show of hands, should we do oldest to youngest or youngest to oldest? Uh, beers. We're talking about beers I think here. We go, I think we should go. Y- <laughs> <laughs> Just want to specify for the record. You know, I don't, I don't think you needed to clarify that. Yeah. Uh, let's go youngest to oldest. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> what I was going to say too. I happen to bring uh, three no rules too. So nice. Different ages too. Yep. Oh, nice. Uh, 2016, 17, and 18. I, think. I do have to drive after this. But yeah, we um, all do. <laughs> Aaron, I think you hit the nail on the head. <clears throat> In that, uh, oh, Scott didn't. <laughs> Scott, <laughs> Scott is something. I'd like to say again, we're going from a five year old sour and we're putting KBS into the same glass. This is gonna be great. It's sour anyway. well, we can do a little, little, little rinsey rinse. No, I, I do think you hit the nail on the head in, in that this is, uh, it's all one thing. It's not, it's not each, it's not one, you know, one brewery, one brewery, one brewery. It's, it's, it is a city, it is a community of breweries, and if. 
if we all if if one of us succeeds, we all succeed. I I think that's how a lot of breweries look at it. Like helping out other people is actually helping out all of us, which is in turn helping out yourself. Yeah, he's got the water over there. Because going back to what kind of Scott was saying, there 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 is this consumer education that needs to happen, and the consumer doesn't know why a beer that they're tasting doesn't taste good. Um, They're just going into this this new brewery who perhaps they still have to work the kinks out. They've only been open a week or two, and the people are drinking the beer and they said, eh, I'm not really into this. Or maybe their their perception on what they think beer is now has changed because they've tried something and it's it's not what they thought it was. Or, um, and, and talking about that and us communicating with each other, hey, listen, we have this process. I think you'd really be into this. Or, hey... Um, you know, we can test this thing for you. We have our this kind of equipment. Uh, this this lifts us all up. Yeah, it's it's almost like we're all striving for something that's unattainable. It's like we're all trying to help one another brew this beer that's going to solve the world's problems. <laughs> and like, hey, oh, I've got this process that we're trying. You should try this. <laughs> like, maybe it'll work for you. We're trying to make this beer that's going to, <laughs> I don't know, propel us into the future. Or I don't know. It's Allow us to commune with the gods. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, well, I, th- that'd be great. <laughs> Actually, we're working on a recipe. You wouldn't believe the yeast. Uh, yeah, that's the what... yeast is weak. <laughs> the yeast is weak. Brewed like with the uh, the blood, sweat, and tears of uh, of all the brewers and uh, fermented with... Uh, I have no idea. No, the blood? <laughs> with, with the blood, yes. So one thing I, I kind of want to bring up with that last point, Taylor, is is quality control is also intent because we can talk all day about these off flavors acetaldehyde diacetyl but these are flavors and we'd even mentioned before with um, movie theater popcorn it's used as a flavor so don't fear these flavors use them as a tool if you do not want diacetyl in your beer understand it and being able to master it but if you're brewing something like an english ale and maybe that's acceptable then use it because they are flavors they're not always off flavors what makes them an off flavor is your intent absolutely um take a look at uh say britannomyces uh or britannomyces i I mean to say uh in that some barrel-aged beers are in terms of the bjcp uh guidelines actually are okay having a little uh brett character yeah yeah, it depends on the style. Different, yeah. That's a good point with the English, you know, or you know, uh, Belgian beers have a ton of esters in it, you know. So uh, the Hefeweizen, you, yeah. You don't normally want the <laughs> banana, banana clove flow yeah. you're in <laughs> almost any other beer, yeah. but you you definitely want that in the yeah. in the Hefe. Mm-hmm. So this is 2019. Mm-hmm. This was uh, well, probably like a couple weeks ago, bottled. Yeah, this is nice. Ready to go. So, I'm sorry, which, which years did you bring? 19, 18, 17, 16? Yeah. Yep. Cool. So, yeah, we're not going to be able to drink all that. Yeah, I don't yeah. like this one. Can I try the 18? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Let's get into it. I'm fine with it. I brought it, I brought this beer to drink, not just to look at. Mm. Um, let's see here. So, you know, quality from a homebrew standpoint, I think we've covered that. Done a good job with that so far. Sure. Um, You know, I think I wanted to loop back on, like, you know, quality, again, is, like, a lab is great, but it's still, you know, as a homebrewer, just putting in the time and, like, and getting a repeatable process, knowing what you're 
knowing what you're shooting for, I think having a good end goal is really important. If you're just stepping into a homebrew thinking, hey, I'll just make something, you're probably going to wind up not where you want to be. Because if you don't have an, you know, a good target to shoot for, you're going to end up, you know, somewhere where you probably don't want to be. Document. Let me ask you something. Uh, if, if we are going to look back, get started on that. <laughs> um, what kind of things do we do at breweries? We were all homebrewers, weren't we? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Perfect. Once so, in the eighties, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I was homebrewing before I was 21. So was I. I was working in a brewery before I was, I was not. 21. I had, fr- I had <laughs> friends who did it before I was 21, and I was so yeah. I have 18-year-olds <laughs> in my class that are homebrewing, and Hell yeah. I I have to say I'm proud. You can yeah. produce beer legally. I know. It's yeah. it's weird, though, that you... Encourage that? <laughs> well, no. How does, how does that work for your class in terms of, like, can they drink the beer that you guys are yes. making? So legally on campus, they can uh, consume up to a certain amount over a certain given period underage. Wow. No way. I didn't know Same that. Same thing with the wine tasting classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. It's awesome. All in the sake of education. Yeah. People. So when you guys became professional brewers, what are some things um, that you guys were doing as professional brewers that you realized, oh, sh- shoot, I should have been doing that as a home brewer? Uh, watching the boil. <laughs> um, paying attention. Not drinking while I was mashing in. Not drinking while I was boiling. Not drinking really no. while I was Ever. Oh, yeah, Are you kidding? I still drink on the job every day. <laughs> you heard it, founders, right here. <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, FYI to those listening, uh, we are not all, all a bunch of alcoholics. <laughs> okay, that <laughs> that is a common misconception. We are functioning alcoholics. <laughs> no, we are t- we are beer tasters. <laughs> Sorry, we're professional functioning alcoholics. Am I getting it right? <laughs> a lot of the brewers I know that have been in the industry drink the least. You know, yeah. that's they, very you true. Know, that's <laughs> very true. And then the and then eventually they they loop back to all I want to drink is light beer too. Oh yeah, it's that's true. The that's thing. The that's true. I've, I've come full circle. All I want to drink now is light american lager my right. favorite my favorite beer like my go-to beer now stroh's <laughs> i was gonna say solid Sons gold but yeah solid. <laughs> of course you're gonna see a solid gold. shameless plug hey, it's yeah. pretty good shameless <laughs> shameless number plug. three number <laughs> three well me here at the man i love drinking that platinum some <laughs> no yeah i think a Great lot of beer. breweries Tell enjoy me. the lighter stuff because we know how technical it is i mean those mm. are the toughest beers to make and yeah, all of us sure. know yeah. that you know like it's easy to make an ipa or uh, you know some really heavy stout and kind of cover up Whatever off flavors might be there, it might not. Who knows? Um, with a lager, there's not anything to hide behind. So Absolutely. any little problem is going to shine right through. So, th- I mean, those are my favorite beers, too. It's hard to think of stronger flavors than coffee and <laughs> yeah. a and bourbon hops. barrel. Yeah. Yeah, and, a, and really strong hops, yeah. too. Like, but then again, if you brew one of those and off flavors are shining through, then you really know that you have a problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's an interesting, interesting history there with the lager because uh, lagers... Uh, became the, the most prominently brewed beer uh, around the world because of its shelf stability. It uh, was fermented colder, it, so it, that means uh, that non-desirable microbes had less time to take hold of the beer, uh, and it, its overall shelf stability was higher, which means it could travel further distances and be fresher. Uh, that's why it was so predominant. and. Like you said, people don't understand how difficult it is to actually brew a, a good lager. Um, right. I think that's why you come full circle is because you want to stray away from your Budweiser's, your Coors, and you want to start getting into craft, your IPAs, your Browns, your Porters, your Stouts. And then all of a sudden you come back around as a brewer and you say, wow, brewing a really good lager is really, really hard. All of a sudden I have this new appreciation. You're proud of it, right? You're proud when of you're, it. Yeah, exactly. yeah, you're so proud of it. 
Yeah. Every, every, every brewer that you can think of, trust me, loves a, le- a nice light lager because mm-hmm. they, know, they do know how hard it is. And especially clarity. I used to be like, what, why, why the hell is clarity so important? And the shelf stability. Mm-hmm. That's the answer for it. Shelf stability every single time. Matt, there, do you want some KBS? Yeah, I've actually never had that. What? What? Well, you live in in Beer City, USA. (laughs) Which year would you like? All of them. them, (laughs) Give them the the fresh stuff. Yeah. Okay. What year is this? It should say on the back in the top right corner. So it was a 19. Yep. So that would be like, yeah, a couple weeks ago. Great year. So we're we're drinking drinking 18 now? Yeah, this is 18. So. Oh, wow, that's good. This is a great example yeah. of one of those beers that does hold up to age, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it's just good packaging, man. Yeah. Yep. It's the important part of it. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are some noticeable differences between the two years. Um, this one's I, mellowed out a lot. It's yeah. definitely yeah. mellowed the Much coffee. Less better. What yeah. do you mean by mellow, though? Can you yeah. explain maybe to everybody else? Yeah, I mean, there's a little less alcoholic heat to begin with, so you don't get that. It's a little less boozy. Um, the oak character is, a, I think, a little more rounded. I, I appreciate it and like it a little bit more. Um, yeah, it's just a little toned down in a good way, though. It's not, you know, it's still obviously very robust beer, but uh, I think those those... Uh, flavors that have some time to meld together almost mm-hmm. and really incorporate with one another. I think that's yeah. that's awesome. I totally D- agree. Doesn't oxygen actually help that? Isn't there like some like polymerization of polyphenols? A microoxidation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've, that kind of rounds out that like tannic kind of. Yeah, I've seen some studies on barrel aging and microoxidation and stuff like that. Um, actually, having a, a positive effect to an extent on uh, mm-hmm. on the beer flavor. Yeah, yeah I, I think you mentioned liking those kind of old. Those old beers sometimes, and I think that's probably part of it is like an old ale or like a barley wine. You kind of like that yeah. slight oxidation, not on the because like with a dry hop beer, you'll get that that really bad oxidation. But mm-hmm. with a uh, with a well hopped old ale or a barley wine, you'll kind of get that mellow, caramely, um, yeah, oxidized, which I, I think is probably what you're enjoying. Which you'll which you can taste kind of just on the base of like a, a old double IPA. Exactly. Essentially, what you've got there, you know, you're. Your uh, your base beer without the dry hopping was like a barley wine or an old ale. One of my favorite flavors in beer is is uh, is the milliard flavor. Yeah, it's it's the burnt caramel, um, the raisin, the plum kind of flavor that you get on your barley wines on your old ales. That's why my two favorite styles of beer are barley wines and old ales. Yeah, um, and I think you're absolutely right that uh, you get that kind of caramely sweetness, almost that milliard kind of flavor uh, with old oxidized beers. Yeah, it's accentuated certainly with the with the oxidation because that's like the the process of of the Maillard reaction of of proteins interacting with some sugars is is done during the malting process, but then is uh, kind of echoed and is a similar process during oxidation with those same products. So it just takes a lot longer, but when you're when you're malting, you're essentially doing the same thing but just much quicker. And those precursors are there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, So you're 17 and you're 16. Yeah. Are we going to get there? Are you going to open those? Can we expect more like Itunaniel, more cardboard flavors out of out of these older ones? Um, I would not expect any more cardboard flavors. Um, I don't want to talk too much out of my depth here, but you know they're packaged at the same. Uh, you know, oxygen spec when they're packaged and, and quality spec. So uh, there should be less of that, but, uh, or 
you know, more oxygen aging, but uh, it shouldn't have uh, any of the negative drawbacks that we're tasting right now. KBS is one of the most popular beers on in America. In America. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm <laughs> on the planet, but I'm, I'm not, I can't speak to that. Because, right. Um, anyways, uh, what, what, what can people expect from, from aging this beer? Do you want me to do another shameless plug? <laughs> I want you to do a shameless plug. <laughs> I mean, if, if you Jason, have... Jason Hasek said not to do it, but the consumer's going to do it anyways. What, what, what can they expect? Oh, from with it? with aging your KBS. Um, well, first of all, again, KBS is great. Right when we release it, we're not releasing it if we think you shouldn't drink it right then. Um, just like I'm sure Perrin does with all of their barrel aged stouts and barrel aged porters and barrel aged brown ales and barrel aged. You guys barrel aged a lot of stuff yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's yeah, it's gonna keep mellowing out. I think it's gonna keep getting a little uh, sweeter. To be, uh, it won't actually increase its sweetness. Its perceptive sweetness will increase, um, mostly because its bitterness is gonna go down. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those age, what's happening is those those hot products, those um, alpha acids and beta acids, and all of their similar products are gonna start, uh, you know, falling apart and changing into other stuff. And so you're not gonna be able to taste that bitterness as much. Um, and so it's going to make it seem like the sweetness and the caramel and the vanilla and the barrel are coming a lot through, are coming through stronger because they're not fighting off that bitterness. And, you know, what we just tasted, the uh, the fresh KBS is is really well balanced with a little bit of bitterness, too. You can maybe uh, enjoy it a little bit more. You maybe like it when it's a little colder and it, it has a good balance. This other stuff, as you go back, I like to drink them a little bit warmer because it almost, it becomes... Well, really decadent. I don't like to drink as much of them because they they come off so much sweeter, um, and they drink like a like a dessert, like a like. Ooh, I shouldn't be doing this. This is bad. <laughs> this is, this is. What kind of dessert are you talking? <laughs> <laughs> like a like a death by chocolate type stuff. Oh. I think yeah. With a beer like KBS, they're obviously very intent on how they're doing everything. You know, from how long they're leaving it in the barrel. You know, Haystack probably has his process. Yeah, pretty much down by this point, you know. We've handled a lot of barrels. Yeah, exactly. So you know, they only leave it in the barrel when it's ready. You know, it's not a time issue. It's when it tastes the best, like Scott was saying. I, I mm-hmm. you know, that's how we treat our barrel of beers. Um, more time in the barrel isn't necessarily always a good thing, in my opinion. How extensive is your barrel program at Perrin? Um, at certain points, we've hovered around like four or five hundred barrels. Um, about a, maybe like a quarter of those being sour. Wow, it's a little bit less right now, though. Uh, are they stored in the same room? Um, we actually have our production facility, and we're lucky enough to have a separate building where we keep all of our barrels. So uh, no, nothing sour or barrel age comes into our brewery without getting sterile filtered. I mean to say that the uh, are the sour and the, uh, the oh other? Uh, yeah, they're in the same building in different parts of the building. Uh, I got a question. A good... If that's all right, uh, sure. You know ahead. what kind of quality control points do you run into when you're dealing with barrel-aged beer compared to, uh, you know, your your classic IPAs? Or um, well, with barrel-aging, I consider it a lot more as the art side of yeah. beer making than yes. the science. So it, it's a lot more like winemaking than it is just uh, production beer. So there's a lot of blending going on. Um, with our sours, we're testing pH and total acidity. We're doing that stuff, making sure we're hitting the final specs. Um, so with the quality control on uh, barrel-aged beers, anytime you put a barrel age, or a beer in a barrel, it's going to have positive micro, yeah, you know, yeah. without a doubt. So then you have to stabilize it somehow 
um, in order for it to be uh, able to sit on the shelf for an extended period of time, however you're going to do that. So we do uh, extensive micro on ours just to make sure that it is good to go and uh, good to package. and then from there, you know, normal stuff like ABVs, um, you know, gravities, pHs, um, all that good stuff. So we have a Scotch porter. Um, it's it's essentially a, it's basically a porter with specialty and you know some uh, peated malt. But uh, <clears throat> we barrel aged uh, four barrels worth of it and popped them open. First thing I saw in one of them was a big old pellicle on the top. And is this something you didn't mean to sour? No, of course. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Because right. um, I like pellicles in my sour barrels. Yeah, of course, so of course. Yeah. But no, this okay. is a yes. This is a big, you know, boozy porter. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, like eight and a half, nine percent. For those um, unfamiliar, with pellicle is like a, a skin. It's a mic. Of, it's a microfilm. Yes. So it's a micro. It's, just, it's a. It's a yeah. micro. It's a biological film of uh, on bacteria to, on top of the liquid on the right. surface. Yes, exactly. Um, but I was excited to see that. Because that adds some depth of flavor uh, to the beer, and, and the beer isn't souring. I mean, there's very little for the uh, what I'm assuming is, is lactobacillus, um, or possibly PDO. Uh, Brett makes a lot of pellicles too, or, or Brett yeah, exactly yeah. to uh, to chomp on. I mean, uh, if anything, like I said, it would it's going to add some depth to it. So, uh, like you said, there's almost this uh, expectation of contamination when you're barrel aging beers. Yeah, you can never sterilize wood, obviously. You can't sanitize it like you would a stainless tank, so you're going to assume that there's some... I've got a good quote about sterilizing wood. The only, Do you guys... Uh, Alec uh, from the Mitten, years ago, had this saying, the only way to sterilize wood is with fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. True. Uh, and you, that's, you don't really do that very often. Rechart. So yeah, this is the definitely the art side of brewing as opposed to the science side on the front end. And then after you get done to, uh, done blending and stuff like that, then you can start running your specs and making sure that you blend it properly and that you have the final product that still meets your specifications. But you know, it's it's very you know hard to control once it goes into a barrel, especially when it's sour. You know, there's a lot more factors at play that you don't have quite control over like you do with your ingredients and yeast. And you know how your yeast is going to perform every time. You know, you inoculate with a certain bacteria set, but you don't always know what you're going to get, essentially, mm-hmm. you know. You know, and I have to add, too, that these uh, these barrels that we use are actually second use. So we, yep. we aged our Death of Flying Things, uh, which is our Imperial Stout in them, uh, fresh, straight from the distillery, um, there's still residual uh, alcohol in the barrel. Oh, yeah. Enough to sterilize it. And then we pull it out, and then we add a new beer into it. And all of a sudden, the uh, the steaks, uh, or the... Uh, Staves. Staves. No, no. I, I didn't even mean no. that. Uh, basically, the, uh, the, the ability for the microbes to grow uh, becomes that much greater. Uh, because we've stripped it of of that alcohol. Yeah, yeah. You've given them a much cleaner environment, so exactly. they don't have any, they don't have any competition. Maybe. So Scott, with KBS, you only use barrels once, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So they're first use barrels. We might for our some of our barrel aged well, beers use them for once or twice. Technically, second use. Oh, second use. Okay. So bourbon would be first use. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. In terms of brewing, yeah, yeah. we call first beer use. Yeah. 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 Okay. First use in the brewery. First so beer use. eventually, you're going to stop getting oak flavor though, and that's when we send them to sour. And then it's just like, mm-hmm. you know. Same. So, yeah, yeah. Our, we have this a barrel program. So we start with a bourbon barrel-aged beer. That's something uh, that we want to ha- take on the quality of bourbon. Yeah, the second in there. The, the yeah. second turn is going to be something like an Old Ale or a Big Porter or something like that. that we want good oak and maybe a little residual uh, bourbon flavor. And then after that, go straight to the sour program. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're not getting anything out of the oak from that point. It's just mm-hmm. a vessel to store your micros. sour beer in, you know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what do you guys think about just jumping to the 2016? Just go to the oldest one I have. I'm yeah, I'm that. cool with that. I'm done with that. Yep, I don't, I don't know if I can... I think the 17, you'll understand what it could hold if you've tasted the yeah. 18. And the... I was most excited to try the old one. <laughs> so far, the biggest difference I've seen between the 19 and the 18 is the coffee perception. The coffee is sure. a little less abrasive, and it's uh, smoother. Nice. A little green apple. A little acetaldehyde. Sure, maybe a How dare you. Yeah, watch my <laughs> no. Well, I mean, that's, that's indicative of oxidized uh, high-red yeah. alcohols. Yes. Mm-hmm. Hey, if what you taste is what you taste, go with it. Yeah, everybody well, it, perceives it, stuff differently. So, and, and, yeah. and, and that's part of the desirable aspect of, of bourbon barrel-aged beers is, you know, your your oxidation is, um, is your oxidation of, of ethanol yeah. it leads to your acetaldehyde, which is your green apple flavor. Your oxidation of unsaturated fatty acids is your uh, your cardboard flavor kind of thing. But these things are desirable in in bourbon barrel-aged beer. Yeah, I think so. Uh, well, uh, I, I, to an I, extent, I, to, I, yeah, to an extent. Like, like, sure. like Aaron said, uh, be. Uh, um, what did I say? What did you say? Uh, everything intent, in moderation. Intent, except everything here. intent. No. Yes, have, have yeah. the intent. Yeah. If it's there, you better damn well mean it to be there. Yeah, it's when it's uh, there and you didn't mean for it to be there. That's when it's an issue. Yeah. Right, 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 right. On this one, you're starting to get a lot of that good, like, vanilla and coconut and all those, you know, really good mm, yeah. barrel flavors. Yeah, yeah. I get, to I get, I get the cardboard right off the bat. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's four-year-old. Three-year-old Which is beer. desirable. Ooh. Oh, there you go. 16? Yeah. I'm getting a lot more like Matt, our producer over here. Is, the seven, uh, the eighteen tasted different. Eighteen tasted way different than the nineteen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because even like a month or two, like mm-hmm. the nineteen being so fresh, you really are still gonna get kind of. Whoa! Yeah, you said the coffee flavor. Yeah. Comes out more. Yeah. Interesting. I get a little more alcoholic burn too as a yeah. As opposed to yeah, definitely opposed yeah. to the eighteen. Yeah. Eighteen was yeah not, not on, that on the sixteen. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Does anything happen to the alcohol over time? Uh, in our beer, no, because we are um, uh, pasteurizing all of our beer that comes out of our out of our barrel. So, like Perrin said, you guys have a sterile we sterile filter. filter. Yep. So yeah. we're tackling that problem in a different way. We're pasteurizing all of our beer. Same uh, thing. You're either stabilizing or removing the microbes that could eventually do something with the alcohol, right. whether convert it back in, you know, if there's enough oxygen, convert it into acetaldehyde or whatever. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, and and then obviously doing micro tests on our bright tanks and our post barrel and, and all of our packaging runs. If there's nothing living in there, the alcohol isn't going to increase. There's nothing to make more alcohol. So what's happening? What's happening with the actual mellowing of a beer when when someone says, "Ooh, the uh, the heat is gone," you know? For instance, we when we do barrel tastings at the Mitten, uh, pop open all the barrels, we taste them, we say, "Oh yeah, this is uh, the heat's gone from it." Yeah. What, what's happening? Well, um, I'm going to do the best I can to answer that. Okay. Jump in. At yeah, yeah. Whatever okay. you. I was going to say, we'll take a stab at it. Um, so you're talking, I think I kind of t- touched on this earlier, but talking about just the mellowing over time as well. So, I mean, you're as brewers, we've put in a lot of flavor-active compounds. And with any beer, even if you don't have much oxygen in there, these compounds are just going to start unraveling, coming apart um, and changing and mellowing out and becoming less, uh, less flavor-active. Or you get that mellowing part of it. 
Am I making? Am yeah. I making sense? Yeah. Are the actual uh, like ethanol molecules changing? Ethanol, no, because it, it, I think yeah, that's a good point. Is that there's different kinds of alcohol too. So if there's the, ethanol, and then there's fusel yep, or hydrogen exactly. alcohols. You know, are those changing, or is it the other players that accentuate or or uh, play down? Well, fusel alcohols usually have that boozy, burny kind of almost solventy if they're really bad mm-hmm. kind of flavors. And those might be what are breaking down, like Scott said, you know, eventually unraveling over time and breaking into simpler, smaller chain alcohols over time. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, I mean, just basic entropy, really. Yeah. It's a big molecule. Over time, <laughs> sitting around, it, it, it will just start coming apart yeah. um, if there's nothing in there to keep building molecules back up, if there's nothing living. Scott, is this uh, KBS from your own personal store? Yeah, it is actually. Really? <laughs> Thank yeah. you. I, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate you. The, this. Yeah, the sixteen. I yeah, the nineteen. Yeah, the nineteen. I was able to get my hands on some nineteen and eighteen and seventeen, and then just living in the wonderful city that we do. I've got uh, a little bit of sixteen, and uh, actually, I had some fifteen held up, but I figured. I try to pick up a four pack every year. Right, <laughs> you know, I keep, keep a four pack. <laughs> yeah, I bought so Good much idea. last year. I'm like, I don't even know if I'll buy some more this year. Yeah. Especially spending a month taste testing and and being involved with it every Had day. Enough I'm of like, it. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Had> my <pill. laughs> So we're gonna start wrapping it up here a little bit. Uh, I kind of wanted to end this and uh, what can a newer brewery do in terms of QC? What, what are the first steps? I mean, I guess, what, what are the steps to building a proper QC program for a microbrewery? I'll go back to my uh, three-pillar idea, you know, sensory. Obviously, it's all start there. You know, that's very easy. Like I said, you can buy imitation butter, imitation banana from the store, start training your guys up, you know. Just put a couple drops in a pitcher of beer and start getting them used to these flavors and then toning it down over time, you know. So getting, you know, calibrating yourself and getting, treating your palate like an instrument, you know, that's a really, that's the best place to start is with sensory. Um, There's a lot of micro testing, like HLP testing you can do without an autoclave. Um, cost a couple hundred bucks. Aaron's breaking out. Um, yeah, I don't know if yeah. we uh, talked well, about the three-pillar <laughs> system yet, but the three pillars yeah. would be sensory, microbiological, and chemical analysis. Is that yeah, analytical. Is analytical. Analytical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So analytical, all you would need is a hydrometer, which most home brewers have or small breweries have, and a pH meter. That's a good place to start. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think the pH meter is uh, one of the, unfortunately – often overlooked pieces of equipment. I wouldn't go without it, man. That's, exactly. That, Same. that should go hand-in-hand with your hydrometer and your temp probes yeah, on your tank. Say, you I cannot hope, I hope do not. it. When I entered the world yeah. of brewing, that was, you know, to me, it, it was, you need a hydrometer and a pH meter. That's, yep. And obviously, as we grow as professional brewers, uh, what we what we deem necessary for, for making a quality product grows and expands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being into this now for almost four years... I could ostensibly have the mitten spend a good million dollars on. <laughs> right. Yeah. We've all got our. I'm ready to spend money. Let's I, go. Yeah. Like, I, it's I, not. I, that's not what I want. Yeah, we, yeah. We all have our wish list. So. Yeah. Exactly. I have a document so, called a wish list. And I, you know. I know. Same. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, that's what you should do. That's the basic part. So you start off. You know, your mash pH so important. So many breweries don't do that. So many breweries just mash in and and lauder and and pay, pay you no can tell. Rate, pay no, you yeah. can tell. Yeah. Um. So your hydrometer, your pH meter. What's the next step after that? Oof. 
Yeah, if you're building up something basic, um, I know the ASBC. If you get, if anyone has, they do have a really cool outline. Yeah, they yep. have a great outline uh, based on the barrelage that you make per year and even your budget of yep. what you can start getting into and what they recommend. If you have access to the ASBC documents, um, highly recommend that. Um, but as far as basic stuff. Um, I would throw out uh, forced fermentation, which I know the mitten yeah. does is good. Just uh, if you can, you know, somehow get a, a sterile container, which is, uh, you know, maybe tough without an autoclave. Um, you can know. use, yeah, one of your sanitizers or I had a four. Yeah. Probably, yeah, you can get away with it. I used to do it, so. Sure. And I didn't Let see me, a lot of problems. Uh, and then, well, or I just want to, and forced fermentation would be like, grab some of your wort right as you're knocking oh, out, yep. throw it in a, a in a beaker or something probably glass that you've cleaned the hell out of yeah throw an airlock on it and see if anything happens where you're hoping your war is sterile right there that'd if be anything good. happens it's bad because there's no microbes that you put in there at this point right. if any, you see any activity that's a bad thing so yeah i i, I want to expand on this just a little bit because when, when i started our qc program at our production facility uh, a few years ago that was one of the first things i, I went to uh we ordered from sinmar uh, these pre-sterilized, uh, gamma-radiated sterilized uh, test tubes. They had these little lock-in caps that were already already on there. Yep. And uh, we took our took our heat exchanger, which has a, uh, a little sample valve on it. And so we, we'd flame the sample valve as we're knocking out, open it up into the uh, uh, into the vial, yep. close it, lock it in. And then you can tell if there's any sort of bubbles in there. Um, oh, yeah. After two, three days. Also, too, we have an incubator, and so mm-hmm. we'll keep yeah. it at around 95, 96 degrees. Um, it's a good incubation temperature to kind of see forced fermentation, to see if there's any sort of microbes. Um, if nothing happens, then you have a sterile product. Yep. If there is something happening, well, then there's either something wrong with your process of taking it or there's something wrong with the uh, the heat exchanger or, or something along those lines. Cleaning methods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say if you're, if you're trying to start a QC program uh, or or whatever facet of quality you're talking about, hone your tools, whether or not it's the ones that you have on you and your sense of taste and picking up on off flavors or flavors you don't intend to be there, or understand your tools or purchase tools or have tools that you can use to quantify data. If it's, if it's a laboratory-grade uh, hydrometer, pH meter, DO meter, all of these are relatively cheap, and it gives you quantifiable data that you can look at and then hone your process on the hot side. Um, as far as packaging, that's that's a whole other story. It's uh, well, yeah. It's, pack- if you're getting it into packaging, I, I really do feel like you need to be ready for that um, fiscally. Yeah. Because it is a huge undertaking. Not only not only does your line cost a lot of money, your canning line or bottling line, um, but I wholeheartedly believe that if you're going to start canning or bottling, you do not do it without a DO meter. I I would agree with that. I know mm-hmm. it's tough. Especially coming from small breweries, like the, a, a decent DO meter, but they, like they go hand boxes. in hand. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. But it's yeah, it's a it's a fit that into your budget yes. when you make price that, your can line yeah. or keg line or whatever you're doing. Yeah, you know? make that part of your budget. Yeah, if, 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 if you can't if you can't afford both, I would say hold off, hold off yeah. one more year, hold off six more months. Yeah. yeah, it really is worth it to be able to test your DO. Or if you've got a brewery next door, maybe, like right down the road that's fortunate enough to have one of those, you could work with them and make try friends. to find a way. Yeah, make mm-hmm. friends. Make friends. Yeah, we uh, 
we aren't your one-stop shop. We, we will definitely test your do if you come in yeah. and bring it. Yeah, because it is a but sim- not everyone at once. Yeah, yeah. it is. A, it For is a, a small price. It is a simple <laughs> test where you know most breweries that have one of it's like, hey man, can we run over and just throw a few cans through? You know, it's really not a lot to ask. We have okay. breweries do that all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, micro yeast mm. viability slurry density. I think the best two places to start for micro are the HLP media, like I talked about, because that doesn't take an autoclave, so you don't have to buy an expensive piece of equipment. Um, it's just the media itself and some tubes, like you were talking about. And that doesn't catch everything. There's no one selective media that catches everything, but the HLP will at least get the really nasty stuff. It will get your you know, lacto and PDO, uh, the, the stuff that's really going to sour your beer. And then uh, a microscope, probably, and a hemocytometer, so you can do pitch rates, at least probably cell counts throughout fermentation as well. But make sure you pitch the right amount of yeast to begin with, you know? So Absolutely. As, you know, uh, like what we do is we put sanitize the tank, put the yeast in there, and then knock out on top of that. And immediately after that, you do a pitch, pitch rate count and make sure that your yeast is where you want it to be. Because that's going to help control your fermentation and make sure that your, your your yeast isn't overstressed or working too hard or not enough of it. And in that case, you know, it's going to cause a lot of off-flavor problems down the road. That was one of the most daunting things uh, going into production brewing was um, harvesting yeast into sterile, or not sterile, but sanitized brinks um, and performing cell counts, getting your slurry densities, your yeast viabilities, and then and then being able to take all that data, determine uh, how much volume, viable yeast, yeah. yes, determine yeah. how much volume. It, it was It was hard at first, and Aaron and I both worked on um, creating some spreadsheets to be able to... A lot to, of spreadsheets. A lot of spreadsheets <laughs> to be able to do all those calculations because it, it is very hard. You're working with a hemocytometer, which is, you know, one ten thousandth of a milliliter, and you have to uh, basically, you know, reverse engineer these numbers that you're working with when you're counting these cells and doing these methylene blue tests. Um but it is important to be able to know how much yeast you're pitching because yeast pitching rates, I feel like, is the difference between making uh, okay beer and really good beer. Yeah. And, I, and I, a lot of money, too. I mean, if you've got enough yeast to do two batches and you only think you have enough to do one, uh, I mean, you're missing out yeah. on uh, on buying, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of pre-made yeast or, or, or something like that, you know? Yeah, and going off that pre-made yeast, another good... Uh, point to uh, to talk about is whether or not you should use dry yeast or a liquid culture. And the way I put it in some of my classes is, is if you woke me up and expected me to work immediately, I would not perform as well. It'd take sure. me a while. I need a cup of coffee. You know, right, I need to right. stretch a little bit. But if I'm already awake, give me 15 minutes, maybe uh, 24 hours, yeah, like give that. or take, then I'm going to perform a lot better. I'm yeah. going to be able to work a lot quicker. So if you're using dry yeast at home, either rehydrate, wake your yeast up. It's, Eat it some sugar, yeah. and it's dormant when it's when it's dry. That's you know one of the worst things you you can do. You're going to see your lag time your lag time on your fermentation go mm-hmm. way up, and that's actually going to affect the performance of your yeast, uh, both from a flavor standpoint and from a fermentability. I, I know standpoint. a lot of professional mm-hmm. brewers that just do the whole. D- dump thing you know oh yeah we yeah. just you know we measure out some dry yeast dump it into the the knocked out wort and call it good yeah um and I, well, I said well at least rehydrate it at the yeah. very least well at why the very least, i'm like yeah. you know, well why would i do that but we, it's, it's always turned out great it, 
it could be better. Yeah. It could Boil be better. some water, sterilize it, and mm-hmm. at least rehydrate it. We, you know, or at least feed it some wort. Take yeah. some, re- take re- some of your sterilized or make a, yeah. make a starter something. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Chris White talks about how when you, excuse me, <laughs> when, when you drop when you drop dry yeast onto knocked out wort, you know, sixty ish, sixty to seventy degrees, uh, up to fifty percent can die on on impact. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize, like, uh, things that can kill yeast is not only, like, too high a temperature, too high of this. Osmotic shock. Right, exactly. Too high of a sugar concentration is absolutely not good for your yeast as well. Gonna shut it down. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, too much of anything is I'm not good I'm the same way, yeast. though. I mean, you feed me one more bottle of KBS, and I'm going to be running out of here again. <laughs> yeah, I... We can't do that. Yeah, I mean... Yeast uh, likes gradual changes. Take yes. it easy, you know? Yeah. Like, it's taking care of you and your beer. Like, just take it easy on it. Everything needs to be gradual. No... We crash at a very... Pressure. Dil- yeah, temperature. pressure, temperature. It all comes yep, down all to that of it. Yeah, yep. absolutely. All right, well, hey, well, listen, we're out of time. Uh... Guys, I really appreciate you guys coming out and chit-chatting with me today. Um, I'm Taylor Darling. We're at WKTV Studios, and uh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for having us, Thank Taylor. You. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. Bring the beer next time. <laughs> <laughs>